Thank you, Marlene, for freighting us into the presence of God. Celebrating the goodness of God is celebrating memory. Because the goodness that's in front of us, we've yet to experience. And the goodness that we're experiencing right this moment is hard to describe. And so when we say, let's celebrate the goodness of God, we call ourselves to remember. So I want you to remember a time, just one, just one, when you felt the blessing of God on your life. The rescue at the hospital when you shouldn't have survived. A car wreck that didn't happen. The overwhelming presence of God in your home in a moment. The discovery of something that God revealed to you in his word that filled you. You'd never seen before. The person he allowed you to spend your life with. The task he placed in your hand Shaking, quavering hand maybe. But the task that he put in your hand that you realized was the blessing of his trust and his favor. I could go on with this line for a long time. I want to take you a little bit through some of the things here. Brenda and I arrived some years ago when I had hair and five little children around. When we arrived here, this was a different kind of church already. It was a new church. It was coming up on its second birthday. And we showed up and were introduced to a group of people who said, it's nice here in our church in Roseville. It's nice here in our church in Carmichael. But we think we should start a church in Rockland. And that's a different kind of group. People who said, I will leave the comfort of my present place. And the friendships that I've already established to move to another place and start a new thing. Because it needs, needs, there's a need there. And being dropped into that heart was a tremendous blessing from God. I've told Pastor Tilstra several times that he gave to me the greatest blessing that I have had outside of my own family. That church very quickly recognized that there was need for a place to land because we'd been renting a building and uh, we needed to get our ducks in a row and figure out where we might live where our church might go. And the head elder and I at the time, Bill Tessman, drove around town. And we checked on places and they were all too expensive. And there was a broken sign. It sat probably just about in this wall or just beyond it. There's a broken sign. It it looked like this. And it it was a for sale sign for this property. And we figured because of the nature of the sign... This was a defunct thing. But after driving all over town 
And driving past this sign probably half a dozen times, we decided to call. And we discovered that it was still for sale. And that they had bought it on speculation and things hadn't gone the way they had hoped. And so they were willing to unload it cheaply. And so we got it. We bought it. We had a meeting with the church family that day or that week. We met up at the, uh, the Pine Hills Church or Pine Hills School because we didn't have a place of our own. So we met in their kitchen. We're sitting around in a circle and we're talking about buying this land and talking about the fact what we would offer for it, what we thought we could get it for, etc. And I realized again what a different place it was when I said, well, that's the situation. We're going to probably have to raise some money to get to the down payment. And someone in the group that night of about 10 or 15 people said, well, did you come to take did you, did you come to, to prepare to take our pledges? Now, you know, most churches, you have to work up to asking for pledges. They were asking me if we were ready to take pledges. So our pledges, I tore a, a sheet of yellow paper in small bits and I passed it around. And people made their pledges for the place that we would buy that is this place. The thing that probably hit me the most that night was a family who, I knew their circumstances, a family who wasn't on the upper end of the church's financial means. They were probably less fortunate than a lot of the people who who were going to this church. It was around the holiday time. They had just gotten their Christmas bonus, and they gave the entire thing over to us. Over to you. Because they all saw the future you. And from there, time went by, time went by, time went by. God gave us the three lots in the front. We built the building across the way. And all the time, the people in the church worked toward those things with an internal vision for what might be. We built that building over there, and we said um, we should build a space that will seat at least 350 people when there are about 150 people in our church. And we only had one person who was, I think, a super strong realist. And they said, there's like 150 people coming. Why are you building a church twice the size of what we need? And I had to convince them that they would come. If we built it, they would come. When we opened the doors of that space, we had plus 250 people in, in the house. And it's been that way. A blessing from God. A blessing from God, a blessing from God, over and over and over again. And you are now the next generation's memory. Because you were involved in building this, most of you. And the generation who comes into this will fill the seats that you thought we needed. Will be the people saying, wow. Wow. How cool that they thought of me and did this. 
the ones who thought of you and the ones you thought of. When we, pr- pr- when we proposed building this place at about 600 seats, it was at a time when we were in a, sp- a space that only held 350 that was often filled with 450. And they said, we need more space. But we don't want to build something so big that we can't fill it up and plant another one. Because that group said, let's build a building maybe appropriate for about a a little growth now. And then let's plan to plant a church. And so there's still another version to come. A request someday in the future that will say, how many of you would leave the comfort of your home here and go to place X, Y, or Z and start fresh? That's how we got here. And it's only appropriate that that's what we do next from this congregation. We have helped support the planting of a church up in Oliverhurst, or up in um, Marysville, sorry. And they continue to try and continue to grow, and they've had some their ups and downs, and COVID was hard, but don't forget to pray for our church in Marysville. There will come a day when you'll be one of the people who the Lord says, hey, there's this other community, why don't you go? And when you do, I want you to remember that 40 or 50 folks who are going comfortably to the Carmichael Church and the Roseville Church who said there needs to be a church in Rockland. And when he calls you, and when he speaks to you about that, say, yeah, this is the thing. This morning, I want to take you through a little section of Scripture from John 6 to John 10. I promise not to do the whole thing completely. I just want you to, to catch the vibe of that passage, that section of passages. So I want to talk to you about this morning. Yeah, that was not the sermon. That was just an introduction. I want to talk to you about John 6 to John 10. And I want you to hear in that space the heart of Jesus, its passion, its empathy, and its future. Would you join me for a word of prayer? Lord, we have been to your throne in voice, in the blessings we have heard from others, and in your pouring out of yourself and pouring into others, and pouring into us through them. As we open your word, we ask for your touch on all of us, and especially on the preacher. In Jesus' name, amen. Excuse me. Jesus sets the stage, sets an image for us that begins to paint a multi-layer picture of himself for the church from then to now. He says, I am the door, 
And I want you to stop there for a second because the door into the sheep gate doesn't mean much to you. I want you to think of Jesus and think of a door. A door is something that opens in to a new vista, a new experience, a new place. It's a place of crossing over. It's a threshold into something else. Jesus said, I am the door. I am the way through. I've told you many times, the commandments are not a fence. They're the gates. Jesus is the gateway forward. He is the door by which we enter a different way of living. He's the door by which we enter a new kind of thinking. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. I like that he doesn't say he might be, he could be, perhaps he will. He says, if you enter through me, you will be saved. You cross over from lost to slave, saved. You cross over from serving yourself, serving the brokenness of sin, to serving Jesus. You will be saved. Anybody who enters through me will be saved and will go in and out. And here's the part you're going to lose yourself and find pasture. Don't worry about the sheep metaphor. It's simply saying this, the passage through Jesus is good and he will take care of your needs. This is just one of the images Jesus throws forward for us. I want you to catch a time perspective as well. So Jesus is the door. He's bringing up all of these elements, but there's a time stamp on it. Weirdly, John keeps telling us the time frame. I didn't notice it until this week when I was studying this. That John is trying to keep us in track with what's going on, what time it is. He's trying to help us understand the dates, the times. We're always asking. I've been asked more in the last, I don't know, year, two years. Is Jesus coming soon? Is Jesus coming? Probably any time in the last five. Because with all the craziness in our world, lots and lots and lots of us are asking the same question. Is Jesus coming near? And the answer to that question is always yes. Always. Because none of us, should Jesus come in a thousand years, is going to live any longer into that thousand years than our life. So yes, it's near. Nearer for me now than it was when I first came. But near. It's always every day nearer than it was the day before. We have never been closer to Jesus' return than we are right now. So it's always near. So we should always live as if it's near, as if it's tomorrow, as if we don't know, as if it could be now. Jesus in this period, or John in this period, is trying to help us understand the time. And I think he's helping, trying to help us understand Jesus with this time frame. He says now, in John chapter 6, verse 4, the Passover, a feast of the Jews was near. Jesus is about to perform the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6. He's about to lose this giant following in one fell swoop. They're going to follow him across the lake after eating all that food. They're going to ask for breakfast, and he's going to say, No! You want to eat? You have to eat me. What a crazy metaphor. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood in order to be saved. And they're like, We're out. Everybody, 15,000, gone. And all he has left is the 12 he started with. 
the, the, the inner circle of the disciples. And he turns to them and he says, what about you guys? Everybody else left? Are you out? Imagine the heartbreak for the disciples. Imagine the moment when hundreds, thousands of people just start turning and walking away. They've all chased him to Capernaum from the other side. And when they get there, he says something that literally makes the church empty out. It would be like everybody in the church just on one verse, get up and walk out. And all that's left is the pastoral staff. And Jesus turns to the pastoral staff and he says, what about you guys? Peter makes a very profound statement. He says, where would we go? There's no place else to go. There's Jesus and there's lost. There's Jesus and they're struggling through the mire of this messy world without him. There's hope and there's no hope. Where would we go? Where would we go? And then he says, you have the words of eternal life. Mm -hmm. Marlene reminded us a few minutes ago. And the other pastors reminded us too that not, we not only get to be the recipients of these words, we get to be the ambassadors of the words that bring eternal life. And we get to direct people to the door. Sometimes, some days we even get to help them open it. And when they pass through the door, they will be saved. Eternity is locked in. What a world. What a life we get to live. I'm only in chapter 6. Can you take that sermon home with you today? Where else will we go? Where else will we go? John chapter 7 After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. He did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. Seems reasonable to me. We find out by doing a little bit of math that it was the Passover when he did the feeding of the 5,000. He then stays in Galilee until about six months later, another major feast takes place. The Jewish Feast of the Tabernacles comes. Six months after the Passover. He stayed up there for a long time. Six months. By now it's October-ish. September, October. This year, here, it's October 16 to 23. So you got a picture? He was up there in the spring. Now it's the summer's over. It's moving into fall. And he finally goes to Jerusalem. He has stayed away because it's too hot to go to Jerusalem. But he can't stay any longer. He's told his brothers, my time has not yet come. And then once his brothers are gone, this whole discussion about why his brothers don't believe, but don't worry about it. We're not going to talk about it. He goes. He told them his time had not yet come. And after they leave, apparently it comes. He goes down there in the fall. It was the... Sorry. 
There's a whole bunch of conversation at the tabernacle. At one point, Jesus stands up in church and cries out, You know me, and you know where I have come from. And if you don't, it's because you don't know my father. Imagine a guy getting up in church and screaming during a major, like, Easter or Christmas event. What would you do? Well, we'd track him down and haul him out. It happens in churches occasionally. I had a friend who had a prophet who regularly visited his church and would stand up and prophesy in the middle of the church service to my friend, who was kind of a big guy, stopped him one day and said, Listen, right now I'm preaching. When I'm done preaching, you can prophesy. If the people want to stay and hear you, fine. But right now, sit down. That was that. person mind their manners after that. But that's the kind of, the kind of thing Jesus starts to do. He starts to go face to face, head to head with his future. He goes into the the mix, the mix of all the anger and hatred toward him, and he gets it straight on. He hits it face to face, and he amps it up to eleven. That was October. We're told next by John in chapter ten, verses twenty-two and twenty-three. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem. It was winter. Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Fall to winter. This year, Hanukkah, Feast of Dedication, December 25 to January 2 here in the U.S., there in Israel, presently in our time. So now how long has he been there? He got there in about October, November, December. He's been there for about three months. He stayed away for six. Now he's been there for three. And if you read this section, you find confrontation after confrontation after confrontation. Jesus is in the sanctuary. He's gone there early in the morning. He gets there. A crowd of people gather around to hear him talk. And the Pharisees drag in this poor girl who they found in the act, the very act of adultery. They seem to have forgotten to grab the man or maybe he was just too quick and he ran off or maybe this whole thing was just a setup throw it out in front of Jesus. Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? They're trying to set Jesus in the middle of the trap. He can't actually say stone her. The Romans don't allow them to do that. So if he says, follow Moses, then he's in trouble with the Romans. They have a feeling that they, I have a feeling that they know what he's going to do. Because he's not going to do this. Instead, you remember the story? Jesus kneels down and starts riding in the dirt. Are you as curious as I am about what he was writing? I just wonder all the time. I just wonder, what in the world did he write on the ground? He's writing, and I don't think they're paying attention. He's writing and writing and writing. I, I think they're just irritated that he hasn't answered. And they start to interrupt the writing. And he gets up. He looks at him. This is how I think this happens. I'm coming to you. I think it's like this. The one among you who is without sin, you get to throw the first stone. I think it's eye to eye, face to face. If you're so into this, start. Because he knows these are men who are here on a coward's errand. 
This is nothing to do. This girl to them might as well be a piece of fish. She means nothing. She's just a prop in an attempt to get at Jesus. And he kneels back down and starts writing. I don't know what he wrote. He's a lot more gracious than I am. I'd have called those buzzards out right there in front of God and everybody. I would have. That's why I am not Jesus. And you're all glad. Man, it makes me mad just thinking about it. And I wasn't even there. It's all in my imagination. Ticks me off. You, that's what you did. You, that's what you did. You, that's what you did. I would have told everybody. Their dirty laundry would have been flying through the temple. They would have never been back. I'd have shamed the whole bunch. But our God is not like that. He is so gracious that it doesn't even appear that the authors of the New Testament understood what he was writing. He had such grace for these buzzards. He writes in the sand. And the oldest, wisest, smartest leaves. And then the next oldest, and then the next oldest, until the young and dumb standing there by himself going, guess I gotta go. Be young and not dumb. It's bad to be young and dumb. We get to the winter time. Jesus is walking in Solomon's porch. It's the same weather as here. What kind of weather do we have in December? It can be cold. It can be blustery. It can also be warm. But the fact that he mentions that it's winter probably means it was a cold day. Solomon's porch would provide head cover, over cover for the rain. It's this big portico on one end. It's on the western side, probably the windward side. And he's walking in Solomon's portico, minding his own business. He's just walking along in Solomon's portico. Catching the glimpse of where we are. He stayed in Galilee for about six months. And then he spent about three months in Jerusalem. And we find ourselves here in this moment in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 22. It was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. The Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Spit it out. Get on with it. Jesus answered. I told you. First three words. I told you. And you did not believe. I've told you in the last three months. I stood up in the sanctuary and I told you. I've told you in story and in, in an actual preaching fact. I've told you and I've told you and I've told you. And you just still don't believe. Not because I haven't told you, but because you don't want to believe. You don't want to be changed by it. You don't want to hear what I'm selling you. So you're, you're ignoring me. You're disregarding me. I told you. The works I do, 
I do in my Father's name. They bear witness to me. Remember that blind man? You guys remember, right? Because you took him to the synagogue and tried to kick him out, threatened to kick his whole family out. In fact, you did because I healed him and it happened to be Sabbath. Buzzards. You do not believe me because you're not my sheep. I told you, you didn't believe because you're not my sheep. I said to you, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. You didn't follow. You didn't believe because you're not my sheep. You know how you get to be one of his sheep? Go through the door. He says, you know how you get involved in this? Follow. You guys aren't my sheep. You know how I know you're not my sheep? Because you're not following. You didn't go through the door. You didn't go through the door from death to life. From lost to eternal salvation. You didn't do it. That's how I know you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Who are you? I want you to imagine yourself in the palm of God. I love the images of holding the people of God in His hand. I love the image of Revelation where He says, I hold the servants of the church. I heard the me- hold the messengers to the church in my right hand. The hand of, hand of authority, the hand of power. I hold the messengers to the church in my right hand. That's always been a blessing to me as a pastor. But he says, I hold everybody in my hand. And no one can take you out of it. And if you don't trust me, the Father holds you in His hand. He is the omnipotent creator of all things. And in His entirety, He holds you. In His glory, He holds you. In His strength, He holds you. You're in the Father's hand. You walked through the door. And you know how you got saved? I put you in my hand. Nobody gets you out of my hand. Nobody takes you out of my hand. I won't squeeze you when you want to jump out, but nobody can snatch you out. Who are you? Tell us who you are. My sheep hear my voice and I give them eternal life. Does that mean anything to you guys? I give them eternal life. Do you guys have a clue yet? They're just staring, sitting there staring at them. 
How about the Father? The Father holds them. My, my Father holds them in His hand. No one can snatch them out of His omnipotent authority. You guys got a clue yet? No. Still nothing. Finally, He answers their question. The Father and I are one. Now, I, wanted you to get, I want to give you a, a, a bigger a more global minute. John walks us through the calendar so that we know that it's probably around December when he's having this conversation. And he's about to say, he has just said something that's going to cause them to rise up and want to kill him again. He's angered them and he's angered them and he's angered them and he's angered them and he's angered them. Why is Jesus purposely ticking people off? Well, he knows what time it is. Jesus is aware that the crucifixion is three months away. He's aware that the, the, the time is ticking away and they need to make a decision. He's challenging them. He is in their face because time's running out. And he needs them to decide. Thank you for that little additional illustration. Whoever did that, thank you. I got all day, though. Here's the point. Here's the last. It is an act of grace for God to confront you when you're about to go over the cliff. It is an act of divine authority knowing the end from the beginning, knowing the time in your life, knowing where you are at the moment, for God to jump into your life, grab you by the collar and say, wake up when you're about to go over the cliff. Some of you have been directly confronted by God in your life. Some of you have had the blessing of that moment and you right now are saying, I know, I know, I know, because he did that to me. Some of us have had God whisper and whisper, then start talking and then start getting louder until there was no ignoring him anymore. He definitely wanted me to go in that direction. God always knows the time. If we, if we see anything in these quick, this quick review of John, we see that as Jesus approaches the cross, he gets louder, he gets more direct, and he gets more serious. And that is all grace. If you're standing on the railroad tracks, facing north, and a northbound train is coming up behind you, and for whatever reason you've got your headphones on and cranked up and you can't hear it, wouldn't you want somebody to knock you out of the way? Even if they broke your leg doing it? Would you sue the person who kept you from getting run over by the train? If you are, you are a low kind of person. No, you would thank them for saving your life. As time ticks away, Jesus is very direct with the Pharisees. Because he loves them. 
and he wants to save them. And we are mad at them, and I don't like them, but Jesus loves them. And he's trying to get them home. Anyone in this room who's got a child, a loved one, somebody they're close to who's running away from God, you and I both know you love him just to trip him. So they have to land on their nose and hear his voice. And that's an act of grace. Whether he can draw me with the carrot or guide me with a stick, I'm okay because I know the one who is doing the guiding. And I know he's trying to get us home. Let's pray. Father, our history and our memories tell us where you have been working. And some of us have had to have a stick applied. Some of us have had to be shaken. Some of us have been able to hear the whisper. Some of us have been graciously raised by parents who loved us and brought us into your presence so soon in our lives that we've almost always heard your voice. Thank you. Lord, we pray that you would continue to intervene in our life, in our church, in our walk, and keep pushing us in the direction you want us to go. We pray that you would do the same for those we love. We pray that you would do the same for those we don't even know. Because we trust you. Because you are the good shepherd. 